So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
Hello, 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 everyone. That was uh, Radical Heart by Ross Falzone. Nice gentleman, I believe, from the Tennessee area. Some friends in Tennessee turned me on to his stuff. And uh, he's uh, got a bunch of albums. So uh, <clears throat> check him out. It's got some funny stuff, too, some kind of political stuff that he does. But, you know, sometimes I'm not in the mood for that, just mood for the nice stuff. So everyone, welcome to April. We did it again. It's another fucking month in 2012. April. We've done one th- one quarter of the year is done. We had our spring equinox uh, a few weeks ago. It was very nice. Everything was equal. Uh, I've been off to Hawaii and back since then. Did a really quick trip to Hawaii. Uh, four days. Went in on Thursday. Came home on Monday. Stared at the ocean. For about two full days, that was nice. It was really nice. Can I tell you how nice it is? It was really nice. I don't want, I don't like boasting or anything like that, but I just want to say, like sometimes you need to fly thousands of miles away from your life and just go and stare at a tree or something because it's the only way all the shit in your head shuts down. And yes, so for two days or a little more, all the shit in my head shut down, which was very nice. As I said, um, and I was reading this interesting book while I was there. I read it, started reading it on the plane over. It's called Dying to Be Me by this woman, uh, Anita Morjani, and it's about her near death experience. Now, I don't know what you all believe about this stuff and whether you're into spiritual stuff and the Edward, Edgar Casey stuff or you're more of a rationalist and atheist in that way and, you know, I know most of you aren't, you know, praying to personal gods out there, but, um, I read this book and I have to tell you, my wife's kind of, you know, I did all the new agey stuff in the eighties and all of that and, you know, loved Richard Box illusions and stuff and, and get all of that. And, but, you know, I've kind of gone more to the rational side of things for a while. And then I, then I read this book, you know, and this woman had this experience and these, and she, she was dying of cancer. She was in a coma, had, tumors in her body the size of lemons. She had a lymph, uh, thyroid cancer or lymphatic cancer or lymphatic cancer, a size of lemons, tumors all throughout her body was brought to the hospital, basically in a coma was dying. I mean, her, her, her organs were shutting down. She had this near death experience while she was in the coma at the hospital and, uh, woke up. And I think within three months, there was no more cancer in her body gone. And the, the tumors started shrinking within like disappearing within 10 days. Weird shit going on. And doctors verifying it and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, the experience she had, the reason I want to talk about this was because the experience she had in the near-death experience 
whether you believe it as just a figment of her imagination or whatever it was, she had an experience. And this experience changed her because she got in touch with pure, unconditional love and acceptance of herself, of life, of everything, really got plugged into that space. And, um, and which helped me get plugged into that then by reading it. I mean, really big time into it and was, uh, really letting go of like, though, you know, that I don't know if you even, it's almost like you have to kind of get away from it to notice it. But I would guess that if you really took some time in your morning, you know, your, your first thought of the day is, holy fuck, what do I have to do today? <laughs> This is not a healthy way to start your day. At least for me, it isn't. And it's yet the way I start it most days. So I'm really trying to plug into this other space, this unconditional space where there is no guilt. There's no like generated bullshit neurotic guilt. It's because you know what? I haven't, I'm nothing to be guilty for. I have not done a crime. I'm just a human being trying to be here. So, ah. Uh, I just, I, first of all, I recommend the book highly if you're into that kind of stuff. And even if you're not, check it out. I mean, why not, right? But really, I, I don't know. I like, I'm on a mission now about this unconditional love thing. Um, and I woke up this morning. It was the first day of the week here where I was not plugged into it anymore. I was kind of plugged into, I don't know, kind of a grumpy kind of space. And then, you know, kind of the morning went on and then something shifted. So I, but I'm trying to learn to have practice around this unconditional space. So, um, anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about. <clears throat> My guests today are really great guests. I have two guests. I have a pre-recorded interview with Dylan Godino of laughspin.com who have been just, uh, it's just an amazing website. If you, if you're a comedy fan, this is the website to go to. They have breaking news. They review albums. They have interviews with comics. Uh, they're smart people there. They're very committed to the comedy world. Um, I have a special place in my heart because they're the, the people who were the first to review my, uh, Carlin Home Companion in Montreal and Emma who, uh, reviewed it really got me and it really touched me. So I wanted to sit down with Dylan and just talk about like, why, you know, how did this all start? And what's your love of comedy about? So I have that and that's pre-recorded. And we're going to listen to that right now in a few seconds. And then after that, we're going to have my uh, almost semi live guest. He is alive. <laughs> and it will be a live guest. He's just not live in the studio today. He's we're Skyping. Because he's in the Valley. He has clients. He's a psychologist, Dennis Palumbo, psychologist to Hollywood and, um, also an author and he's been on the show before and I was listening to the interview today and we're gonna talk about all different sorts of things that we talked didn't talk about last time very excited to have him on so uh this is Dylan my interview with Dylan uh I taped it about 10 days ago so uh enjoy okay so I have Dylan Godino is that the way you say your name Godino yeah that's that's exactly correct is that Italian it is Italian. <laughs> Did you have a nice Italian mommy? Um, I mean, we were pretty much um, not. I mean, we we were Italian in as much as uh, we we eat a lot. <laughs> um, but that's but that's about it. To steal uh, uh, to steal Mike Birbiglia's term for it, we were we were pretty much Olive Garden Italians, which means we 
we don't really speak it, and uh, we're we're just Italian by by name. <laughs> and it's and you have unlimited breadsticks in your house or something. That is, if if <laughs> if you wanted unlimited breadsticks, my mother would would make sure you have them. Yeah. <laughs> nice, beautiful. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your journey, you know, you, you, it's like, you know, so everyone knows and I've already introduced you, but you know, you're editor in chief and founder of laugh spin and before that punchline. And it's like, I I always feel like journalists and people who do that kind of work are in service of, of something else and don't get to be in the spotlight very often. So I I wanted to take a moment and spotlight you and, and the work you do and the effort you put out to, uh, to make all of this happen. So, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Uh, so I'm curious about how did you, how did you get involved with this, you know, with comedy and, and, and how, how did all this start for you? Um, well, I mean, my, my background is in, uh, is in writing and my, you know, my degree is in English, uh, with a concentration in, in what my school called professional writing. um, so uh, I, I kind of ever since college I was I, I started writing uh, about music. I've always been uh, a musician. I've I've been in bands. I, you know I'm I'm not anymore. But uh, so so that was uh, the natural thing for me to write about. So for years I would uh, review uh, albums and interview rock bands and and all that fun stuff. And eventually I just started to get burnt out on that. And in, I guess, around 2004, I decided, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of apply what I've learned and what I've known, uh, you know, about interviewing bands to interviewing comedians? Because really, up until that point, um, you know, comedy, stand-up comedy was not really being treated the way, uh, you know, television and movies and music and theater even had, you know, been, been treated for decades before that. So I wanted to kind of uh, start, uh, you know, shining a light on stand-up comedy. And um, I was always, uh, you know, while I was, uh, you know, uh, writing about music, I was always, you know, a, a fairly big comedy fan. Um, you know, probably since seventh and eighth grade, you know, Bill Cosby and your father were, you know, probably the, the two people that um, got me interested in stand-up and, you know, made me realize that stand-up comedy was actually uh, a, a thing. Mm-hmm. That's, the, you know, it's so interesting you just saying that right now because I I hadn't really thought about that, but... That it, that is so true. That stand up was. I mean, unless you were Bill Cosby or my dad, right. you know, you would get a mention when you did a new special or something like that. But other than that, yeah, stand up comedy was. Uh, you know, you, you were either a comedy fan, kind of a geek nerd kind of a person who knew the comics, or right. or you're just one of those people that oh, let's go to the improv and see a show, and I don't know right. who these people are, you know. <laughs> And, and so, yeah, and, and God, it's like, you're totally reframing it for me because now when I, I look at Laugh Spin, it's like, yeah, I get it. It's kind of the Rolling Stone magazine for comedy. It really is. Yeah. And that's, and I have used that exact uh, description mm-hmm. to, to people who needed a description and 
you know, in three seconds. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's basically it. I mean, there, there really wasn't anything out there doing it. So, so, so in 2004, you jumped in and you were kind of just beginning to even sounds like yourself, you know, immerse yourself more in the comedy world. Yeah. What was that like for you to, uh, to enter this whole new genre and, and subculture? Well, it wasn't, you know, the learning curve wasn't that great. Um, because, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, st- I started slowly interviewing, uh, comedians and I, you know, I had a lot of experience interviewing, you know, musicians and, you know, musicians and, and comedians aren't, you know, all that different. <laughs> um, you know, they, they're all, um, you know, they all want attention, not all, but most, Sure. uh, most all want attention. Most, you know, are artistic. Most are, you know, a little eccentric and, and that, and that really, and, and most are, you know, either very or slightly damaged. And those are the people, <laughs> those, those are the people I want to know. Like yeah. those are the people that when I talk to, you know, make me feel like a human being um, because they're, they're damaged and because they're, they're more in, in touch, uh, you know, with, with their feelings. I mean, comedians are just so, uh, I think for the most part, just, just a lot more self-aware than uh even than than musicians for sure um and and normal and you know just regular old you know non artistic types uh and, definitely more self aware than those people and certainly more articulate because I've found that sometimes you interview a musician and they really do not know how to talk about their world because they really do talk about it through music you know they they right. create and yet a comedian you can give them any topic <laughs> and they will talk <laughs> for the next 30 minutes about it if you really want them to yeah and 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 that's true you're absolutely right because that because that is their instrument their their voice uh you know literally is 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 their instrument instrument mm-hmm. um so yeah that's what they're used to you know playing if you will. Yeah, I, I have a secret theory that um, most rock stars wish they were stand-up comedians, and most stand-up comedians wish they could have been a rock star. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I know a, a lot of musicians that have a great sense of humor, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so um, in 2004, um how did how do you assess the state of stand up like the 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 art form of stand up what state was it in and how is it doing you know what because when i i think back on uh you know stand up and you know almost uh, 8 years ago now uh, mm. it it felt like it wasn't in a good place but i don't know maybe that was just my own perspective i i think um i think it's definitely in a better place now but i think uh, in 2004, it was, it was really starting to get to, um, to, a, you know, a, a really good place. Um, you know, in, in 2004, you know, I was, I was thinking of launching in 2005, in the fall of 2005 is when the site act actually launched. And by that time, um, 
you know, the, the first few people I interviewed uh, were were Mike Birbiglia, Daniel Posh, uh, Carlos Mencia. Um, so, and and that was before everybody started to to hate Carlos Mencia, by the way. <laughs> uh, um, so, I felt it was in a really good place, which is kind of what inspired me to uh, to to want to do it. To you know, I I I sort of believed that I would be able to to get access to these comedians because nobody was really talking to them. And at the same time, I saw, you know, a good handful of, of comedians really, you know, starting to, to, to kind of make a difference. Mitch Hedberg, which is, it's, it's funny. I mean, Mitch Hedberg was just, you know, starting to rise. And as we were mocking up, like, um, you know, what the website was going to look like, Mitch Hedberg was actually, uh, like that was like the, the mock story that I always had in there, like mm. you know, like a headline about Mitch Hedberg, and you know, by the time we launched, he was he was gone. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you a snapshot of where uh, where comedy was. Mitch was which was just starting to to really break out, and uh, Daniel Tosh had you know released his first album, and Mike Birbiglia was really starting to make a name for himself as as kind of like a, a good storyteller. Um, so it was, it was definitely, you know, Dane Cook was, um, was, was getting more and more popular and really, you know, opening the doors to people who would otherwise not have bought a comedy album or seen a comedy show. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody, you know, kind of has, you know, Dane's a very divisive character in comedy, you either hate his guts or you love him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I think the thing that you really can't deny is that his popularity really, uh, you know, I, I think energized, uh, you know, a group of, of young people who may not have been interested in comedy at all. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that is true. It It's like he reignited something in the culture about, oh, you know, comedy can be this you know, this thing and it's not just in the clubs and it's, you know, this very energetic, young, fresh kind of energy to it. Certainly Dane brings to it. Um, So what have you noticed the last eight years in the stand-up world and and how has it evolved? Well, I I think, you know, I I think the the main way it's it's evolved is um, more and more well, first, first off, first off, there's there's definitely more types. I feel like there's more types of comedy, hmm. uh, you know. And and some people are are not into labels or whatever, but um, uh, you know, I I think there's just so many kind of uh, like, subgenres. Like, what are some of the new types that you have emerged? You think? Well, you know, I I you know I I, I think this uh, that this kind of alternative comedy. Uh, has, you know, whether you, you love or, or love or hate that kind of, uh, classification, I, I think that's kind of come out. And, and the thing about that is, and this is very, this is, this is very heartening, is that I think little, little by little, this alternative comedy has kind of become not so alternative. And I, and I think that has more to do with mainstream, uh, 
you know, mainstream entertainment consumers mm-hmm. embracing embracing comedy that isn't uh, necessarily straight up, you know, set up punchline, set up punchline. Right. The, the, the fact that Zach Galifianakis is as huge of a star as he is, I think says a lot of positive things about people's, you know, uh, comedy minds and, and how they, they've kind of evolved into something a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, you know, he, he got, he got, he got famous based on his standup, which is so, you know, esoteric and, and, and odd and, and hilarious. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dimitri Martin, like those, those type of, uh, you know, those type of people who, who really, they, they, they somehow, they, they somehow became marketable and it's not that they really changed their act at all. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's that people really started to want something, something a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And the culture, I, I, you know, I think also the culture was, is, is ready for it in some ways. I think, I think about like this American life and how, mm-hmm. you know, the storytelling genre and, you know, and, and the big active storytelling, uh, circuit here in LA has really been amazing the last 10 years. And that, um, you know, people, people are expanding their definitions of, of what comedy is and, and, and that it can fit into this beautiful thing where it can be, like you said, dark and poignant and then hysterical and, 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 and certainly, you know, I guess you, you do put it under that alt, alt comedy type of, um, yeah. genre, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's like there's, it's well, you know, it's like they were just talking about South by Southwest with the music uh, industry. <laughs> they were talking on KCRW this week about it, about how there's like so many sub-genres now of music, yeah. you know? And so I think it just says something in general about our culture with the internet and niche marketing and finding your tribe. Um and and that's I think that's great for music and for comedy because you are getting a chance to find an audience, uh, no matter who you are. You know there there are people out there who who specifically are looking for a certain type of energy vibration in a show. You know and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. One of the things that I've noticed is, and I admit fully to my audience, and they know that. Until my dad died, I really knew nothing about the comedy world. You know, my comedy world was my dad's thing. And yeah, I enjoyed watching comedy and stuff, but I didn't seek it out. And I, I wasn't part of the scene and I never went to clubs or anything. And, and right. it, really, it really wasn't until I met, um, I, Paul Provenza that mm-hmm. I completely got immersed in the comedy world. I was starting to, you know, s- starting to know some comedians before that, but, and the thing that I've noticed just in the last two and a half years, and maybe it's just because I've, I'm just paying more attention, is that the political comics seem to be getting a little bit, you know, some traction in their careers. Um, you know, people like Jamie Kilstein and Lee mm-hmm. Camp, um, mm-hmm. couldn't, couldn't, you know, get a gig or they did get a gig. It was these, you know, typical comedy club gigs and they couldn't get any real traction in the material they were trying to do and it feels like there's more space for them even now is is that a, a decent assessment or is that just my own bias yeah i mean i i 
it's it sounds like a, a, a yeah i mean that I, I think so um i, I mean i i want to i'm trying to think i mean obviously right now i mean it's it, you know political comedy is is definitely a a needed a needed thing um but yeah i mean i've uh, i think it, i've been following you know Lee Camp and Jamie Kilstein and those guys you know i i like both of those guys and yeah, I mean, I you know, I think because of the internet, I, I think because of uh, social media, they're you know, they they are able to uh, kind of you know let let themselves uh, you know be heard a, a little bit more easily. I mean, certainly political comedy you know has been you know popular, obviously, uh, yes. But but I think I guess I'm thinking about it like more in like the mainstream comedy clubs. You know, there's a certain kind of culture in those comedy clubs, yeah, and and, um, you know, and yet, you know, there's so many, and tell me if this is new also, that there's, there's other venues kind of serving up comedy that didn't used to serve up comedy, maybe, maybe, and maybe that's how these alt comics can get a little more time, uh, stage time and uh, yeah. places to go and stuff that you don't have to go to the quote unquote, you know, joke factory or whatever it is. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, um, you know, I think more and more rock clubs are, you know, opening their doors to, to comedy, to, to certain comedians, like you said, like, you know, comedians of, of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of a recursive thing. I feel like, you know, when Janine Garofalo and, uh, that, you know, Mark Marin and, and, and that kind of scene, you know, started out, you know, when they started out and they, and they started playing, you know, non-traditional rooms, you know, yeah. you know, back, you know, bar, back room at the bar yeah. or and, wherever. And then I feel like that maybe slowed down for a decade or yes. so. And now I feel like that's, that's coming back. So, so yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I think they are, you know, making strides, the, the, the more politically minded comics. Yeah. So as you look forward to this year, what, uh, where, where are you going to go traveling? Where are you looking for comedy? What's, is there anything exciting on the horizon that, uh, people should know about and pay attention to? Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to definitely plan on going to Montreal, uh, mm-hmm. this summer. Um, see what's, what's going on there. Um, as far as, you know, what to, what to pay attention to, I mean, you know, that's, it's such a, it, it's such a hard, um, question to answer because, I mean, everybody's, everybody's tastes are just so, different and, and comedy is, is such a subjective thing that well how, um, who are you excited about right now who's coming up that you've kind of is there someone new that you've just gotten a glimpse of or uh seeing getting some momentum that maybe the more mainstream audience doesn't know about yet uh, yeah there's um i mean i don't know how how new or or original it is but i mean i think somebody like uh like mike kaplan um, mm-hmm. I've been, you know, I've been following him for a few years. I think he's, you know, he, he, he kind of got some, uh, mainstream exposure because he was uh, in the top five of the, uh, last comic standing, you know, a year or two ago, whenever that was. I think he's, uh, I think he's brilliant. Um, so, you know, he's, he's somebody, you know, 
you definitely want to look after a guy like Matt Bronger, uh, I think is, uh, I think is really great. And he's coming out with, uh, an hour special for Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, that should be great. Um, you know, there's just so, there's just so many, um, there's, I mean, there's a lot. There's a, <laughs> I, I know, I know I'm saying there's a lot and I'm, uh, I'm not coming up with, <laughs> well, I'm not coming up, I'm not coming up with more than two. Well, so, so, uh, here, so here's what I suggest is, um, <laughs> everyone go check out laughspin.com. Perfect. And become a regular viewer of the page. I don't know if there's a subscription or email list or anything, but go check it out weekly. See what's coming up. See who's writing articles about what, where people are going. You've got amazing writers, you know, who, who are all over the country and, and do stuff. Uh, go and see shows, all sorts of shows and, uh, you know, check out your stuff. And, and you guys are like starting to create content too, like albums and, uh, web stuff, right? Yeah, we're, we're starting, we're, we're trying to, um, we're trying to get the, uh, more video content, uh, going. So hopefully, hopefully that'll happen. Uh, I'm not sure where we're at on the, on the albums thing. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but, uh, we'll see. But that, oh, I just, I just thought of somebody that I should, that I should totally mention. Okay. Somebody, Moshe Kasher. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. He's, I've been following him for years. He's got a book coming out. Uh, very soon at the end of, at the end of March, uh, which I'm almost done with. It's great. He's a, just an amazing performer. He's, he fits that bill, uh, of, of somebody who's, um, you know, has, has been through some shit. Uh, and, um, he's, he's got, a, you know, a great story to tell in his book and his, uh, his, his very intense comedy and, uh, definitely somebody you should look, you should be looking out for. Fantastic. Good. Thank you for that. And hey, maybe I'll even book him for my show. You show, oh my God, you should. It would be, uh, <laughs> be fun. He's a he's a great interview. And yeah, you, good. You guys, you guys, you guys would probably have a lot of fun. That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, thank you, Dylan, so much for this. And uh, maybe we can catch up uh, after Montreal. And uh, and hopefully, I'm coming up to Montreal. I know I'm coming to Chicago. So. Um, for JFL, but, uh, don't know if I'm going up to Montreal yet, but you know, who knows, who knows what's in the future, right? It's a crazy business. <laughs> it, is. Who knows? it is. It is. Well, <laughs> thank you for today. And, uh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. So that was Dylan Godino of, uh, laughspin.com, our little pre-recorded conversation. And, uh, next up, I have, uh, my next guest here who has been on the show before. And last time he was on, we kind of talked about perfectionism and, um, you know, stuff like that. We're going to talk about more stuff like that too. Uh, Dennis Palumbo is a author. He's written so many books. He's written a really great book on writing called Writing from the Inside Out. I highly recommend it if you're struggling with your writing or just love books on writing so you can read them instead of writing. (laughs) Yeah, I know all about that. Uh, But more importantly, uh, Dennis also is an author of mystery thrillers, which are my one of my favorite genres to read. I've been reading them for decades. I love him. And his first book was Mirror Image, but he's got a new book out now. It just came out, I think within the month or something, uh, called Fever Dream, Fever, Fever Dreams, Fever Dream, singular. And, um, 
uh, and Dennis also, uh, was a screenwriter back in the day. He co-wrote with, uh, I can't remember. Damn it, Dennis, you're gonna have to remind me of this anyone. He co-wrote My Favorite Year, one of my favorite movies. And he was a writer on Welcome Back Cotter and used to hang out with Gabe Kaplan and write for him. But Dennis is also a licensed psychologist. He's like an actual real therapist and he deals with uh, creative people in his practice all the time and other people who are not creative in any way. They're just completely uncreative. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so anyway, I'm really excited to have Dennis back on the show. So Dennis, welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's good to be back on the show. I'm sorry you're not here in person, so I can't see your smiling face. Well, you know, it's amazing, too, because I'm doing a great smile right now, and you're not seeing it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it's one of my better smiles, too. I've been saving it up all day. So. God, I hate that when I miss the smile. So, um, well, welcome back. I'm so happy you can come back, and I feel like that you and I could probably do a weekly radio show, just you and I talking about everything and anything. No, I think so, too. It, it, you know, the thing that's so fascinating... Uh, when, when you're a therapist who works with creative people, you, you run the gamut. You talk about everything from the state of the world to the state of creativity to the state of the entertainment industry to the state of therapy. It just runs the whole gamut. Yeah. And God knows I'm willing to have an opinion on almost any topic. So Nice. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was doing today, uh, just kind of I love getting in the mindset with my um, with my guests, I almost was going to say with my clients, which is funny because it's kind of the way it feels. But, uh, I was going over your blog, um, and I didn't mention that in the introduction that you have this great blog called Hollywood on the Couch, and it's on psychology today. And I was just loving, uh, deepening into, to those little, uh, tidbits you have there. Um, how do you decide on what to write? Uh, is it come up for you? Like, is it something that happens maybe in the room with client? You're like, Oh, I got to write about this this week. Or, uh, how does that work for you? Well, it, it's many different things. I mean, <clears throat> one of the advantages of having a column in, uh, on a site like psychology today is you pretty much, they leave me alone. I can do whatever I want. So it's either I, I see something on the news like, uh, you know, it, it, for example, one of my columns was on, uh, the award season in Hollywood, you know, and the column was called Oscars and Emmys and Globes, oh my. And it was about how, for my, in my private practice with my, my entertainment industry patients, you know, the award season or the season of envy, as one of my patients <laughs> calls it, you know, it, I, I'm sort of like, like my attacks guy is attack season. You know, you're totally yes. swamped with, uh, bitterness, envy, you know, all, uh, uh, anxiety about will I win? You know, uh, I know they say it's an honor to be nominated, but actually I want to win, you know, all those things that, so I wrote a column about it. Uh, but it's just as likely for me to, to write a column about something that a patient of mine says mm. that seems so general, so, uh, appropriate, uh, and universal to anyone struggling with creativity. So then I'll, I'll just do that. So it, it really comes from either what's in the news, what's going on around me, um, and or you know something that a patient says. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's, it must be so wonderful to have that that outlet for you, and and it's such a great service because, like I said the first time you did my show, you know you're one of, I think you're the one of the only people who really publicly talks about 
the inner life of the artist and, and, you know, and, and really know it because you're really here. A, you are one yourself. You're a writer. You've also been in the business and, and you really are in the day to day trenches with your clients uh, with this stuff. And, and so it's, it's really cool to have access to your brain and your perspective on, on these many issues. W- one of the ones I was reading today was about, um, how writing a screenplay or any kind of long form, a novel is like a marathon. Right. Right. And I, I just, I loved your, I loved your take on that. Uh, how it's, um, <laughs> how you kind of have to prepare yourself for, for the long journey and it can't, it, and, and that there's, there's different kind of phases when you work on a long form piece. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think the, the, the analog I used was that old British film, Loneliness of the Long, Long Distance Runner. Because you are a long distance runner if you're writing a screenplay or a miniseries or a novel or, you know, a 10 play, uh, theatrical cycle. You know, <clears throat> the hard part is, is to imagine, uh, uh, or ask yourself to have the same level of enthusiasm and excitement and energy and aggression day after day after day, because that's not the reality. It, you know, uh, writing a joke or writing a sketch or writing a short story is a sprint. Mm. You know, you need a burst of energy, one idea, boom, there you go. But a novel is multi-layered. A screenplay is multi-layered. And so I think you have to learn, literally, you have to learn to pace yourself. You have to expect times where your energy level is going to be slow, or, or low, rather, there's going to be times when the writing's going to kind of plateau, and then all of a sudden there'll be this spike of interest on your part, and you have to not panic. You know, uh, uh, William Goldman, the screenwriter, said, you know, a lot of what you're writing is sludge when you're writing a screenplay, but you just have to keep going until you hit the next gem, and then you'll go backwards and fix the sludge. <laughs> and I think that's the key. I think to you can't be a perfectionist moment to moment and do a long form project. It'll just make you crazy. And so what I used to do when I was a screenwriter is if I felt myself uh, starting to lose enthusiasm or get concerned about the story or not know what to do in the next scene, I would sometimes stop and like write a, an op-ed piece, you know, for the LA Times, or I, I would, you know, read a short story or take myself away from it a little bit and then let myself start reading it again from the beginning and remind myself what it is I liked about it. Mm. And then I, as I, I, I also mentioned that I certainly know this is true from my my own experience and, and that of my patients is, you know, you want to be careful not to rush the ending. You know, you're, you're at the last 10 pages of your screenplay or the last 30 pages of your novel, and you're just so looking forward to get the damn thing done <laughs> that you race to do it, you know. And the hard part is to stay, you know, consistent, you know, keep doing the same thing you've been doing up till now. Because the funny thing is, well, you know, after living with a screenplay for six months, you may be really sick of it. When you're done, you're going to have a little bit of postpartum depression. You're going to like kind of miss it. You know, for a while, you'll swear, I never am going to write a long form thing again. <laughs> That's the only time I'm ever going to write something like that. And then, you know, two months later, unfortunately, you get an idea. And you go, oh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to have to go back to work. 
The muse is tapping you on the shoulder again. That's right, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was mu- uh, speaking of music, I was musing when I was reading that because I was thinking about my own journey with my solo show lately and how, like, like last year or even earlier, like when I first came up with the idea to do this thing, it was like this big rush of energy and excitement. And, and part of it was just the idea of doing it. That was exciting enough just to say to people, I'm going to work on this thing. And then of course you, you start doing it and there's, you know, you're facing the reality of doing it and writing it and, and all the ups and downs of that. And, and then I reached a place where I had had done it, written enough of it that I could then present it to the world. And then of course, presented it enough times to think, oh, I need to go back and fix it. And, and now I'm in this place now where it's pretty much the writing is done. It's 99.5% done. Yes, there's tweaks here and there and stuff like that. And I've been rehearsing it and, and working on that part of it. And that's an endless process for me, I find now. But now it's really about, oh, now I'm going on the road and I'm going to tour it. And, and I'm, I'm, I guess maybe it is a little, I don't know if it's like postpartum kind of a feeling, but it, it, it is a sense of like, I don't really know how to do this part now. And, and I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, how you, how, how you've dealt with it and how your clients have dealt with it when maybe there's people who are kind of newer to the business and they've just sold the screenplay or, or now they have to, maybe, maybe the showrunner has, has sold the sitcom and now he has to run the show and he doesn't quite know how to do this part, which is called having success with your project. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's, 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 it's a very different job. I mean, in other words, for your solo show, for example, the writing of it and shaping of it is, is one job. And then the performing of it, you know, uh, every other night on the road is a different job. You know, for, for example, you ask any filmmaker and he'll tell you when there's a, you know, in, in terms of a movie, there's three movies. There's the movie that's in the screenplay. There's a movie you shoot for 38 or 48 days on set. And then finally, there's the movie you make in post-production. Mm. And they're three different movies because yep. they're three different jobs. Yep. And that's the way I looked at it. I mean, when I would get my first draft in, that was the end of my first job. My second job was navigating and trying to interpret or in many cases merely survive the ludicrous notes, script notes <laughs> that I got from producers and studios. But quite seriously, that's part of your job as a screenwriter. Yes. Is navigating and executing notes, some of which you agree with, some of which you don't. And and so that's the second part of your job. And then when the film moves forward and finally an actor is brought in or a director becomes attached, believe it or not, the job starts again. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of yes. like I have a, a, a patient who's a playwright and he's had, you know, he's done two or three drafts of the play. It's in pretty good shape. Then he did a reading a couple times and shaped it again. And when it goes in rehearsal, it's going to be shaped again. Yeah. Because when you cast the film or a play or a TV show, who the actors are, who the director is, all of a sudden, the material subtly changes. Yeah. And I think the hardest thing for a writer to understand, uh, not so much with, with novels, but certainly with television or screenplays or theatrical plays, is you don't actually finish writing something. You just abandon it. <laughs> you just abandon the writing part and then shift over into, now let's get it up on its feet. And I think if you could see it that way, 
um, you don't become so precious about every line in it. Yeah. And you see it as a, as a more of a living thing, a living artifact that is growing and changing in an organic way. And if you see it that way, it's quite exciting. Yeah, that, that's great because I can relate to that in the performing of it because the more I really learn to embody myself on the stage and relax into who I am and, and not quote unquote perform the piece, but really am, am in it. Um, the more things are revealed to me, um, moments of laughter, poignancy that I would have never ever thought of as a writer. And so it's like the audience and the moment is rewriting it on some level it, 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 too. So it's, it is an, it's an endless, co-creation on some level. No, I absolutely agree. And I also think, funnily enough, that when you're writing, that same thing is true. I mean, writing is is dialogic. You know, if you're, if the moment you write a sentence down, you're simultaneously the reader of that sentence. Mm-hmm. And the moment you read it, you think, no, no, I'm going to change that. So, you know, if you write, Uncle Bob walks into the library, you go, no, no, not the library, the kitchen. The moment <laughs> you do that, you and your text are kind of, you and your writing are kind of co-creating the text together. Yeah. And the more you can be open to your to yourself and be just yourself uh, without so much worry about what people are going to think about it or is this going to sell or whatever, you get surprised by what you write. And so, I mean, I find for myself, like, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I write to find out what I think. Yes. I don't know beforehand. You, you're mentioning my column in Psychology Today. I have no idea where I'm going when I write them. Yep. I'm curious to find out, oh, what do I think about this? And I write it. And I find out when it's over what I thought about it. Yeah. You, so it keeps it very much in the present. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I was talking to a friend about that a few weeks ago about how, you know, uh, this, the whole idea of trust and how you like, we don't, we don't know how the end of our sentence is going to be and we trust it will be there for yeah, us when we right. speak. <laughs> and, and so there's so much it can really teach us about how much we do surrender and trust to the moment. And, and that thing that's bigger than us, call it psyche or whatever, that's, you know, that's bigger than just the strategic mind that wants to get it right and be good. And that's right. Yeah. And I think if you have that kind of openness in your work, it doesn't like, well, I can only speak as a writer, but it, it almost doesn't feel like I'm writing. Mm. I feel like it's writing and I'm just taking notes as fast as I can. You know what I mean? Uh, yes. Something other than me. I'm a vehicle for this thing that's flowing through me. And uh, as long as I get out of its way, I'm going to be surprised and interested in, in, in what comes out. And what I have to trust is it's going to be uh, of interest or entertaining uh, to others. And, and I'm always emboldened by something that, that Emerson said, which is, you know, to know that what is true for you in your private heart is true for everyone, that is genius. Mm. And I always try to keep that in mind, that if this feels true to me, it's probably going to generalize out to my reader. Mm, yeah, that's that's beautiful because, yeah, it, it really does speak a lot about what it takes to hear yourself and and find that truth within your heart. I know sometimes when I write, um, there's a place I write from that that's not that. And then I say, I have to say to myself, okay, Kelly, if no one was listening, what is it that you're really trying to say here? 
Uh-huh. And then I write right. that I write that out and I go, okay, now that feels like truth. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking back earlier what you were talking about, the different phases of a project and that, you know, there's a kind of a competence thing that happens. It's like when you, when you're first sitting down writing and, and you feel a little incompetent about it and then you get in the flow of it and you're like, oh no, I'm competent at that. And then, and then there, you go into the editing phase of it. Uh, and there's like a conscious incompetence that comes now with that part of it, you know, and you have to learn to mm-hmm. tolerate the going back and forth between feeling competent and incompetent. That's right. I think the, the key for creative artists is to tolerate and accept all the states that they are. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, I have a patient who said, you know, the, the key to writing is the ability to tolerate despair. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you have to also be able to tolerate joy. Yeah. And by that, I mean tolerate the fact that it comes and then it goes. Yeah. See, you know, the, the the only law in the world is that everything changes. And mm-hmm. so if you have a great day writing, then you have a bad day writing. And, you know, you have to be able to include all of it. And coexisting with feelings of anxiety or incompetence is am, is as important as being able to feel confident in your craft. You know, it's another skill that you need to add to your skill set. Yeah, absolutely. And And thinking about that, you know, that sometimes when we feel incompetent, then what gets triggered is all the childhood stuff about being incompetent or being powerless or all of that. And, and, you know, how much anxiety and thus depression can be triggered by that feeling and, and learning to have this adult point of view about incompetence. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think what you're talking about there, though, is you're talking about the kind of childhood dynamics in which a certain type of mythology about yourself and about how the world works is is born. You know Mm -hmm, what I mean? So mm -hmm. that if you're feeling scared or if you're anxious or if you're uncertain, to me, that just means, gee, writing is hard. But if you feel uh, uncertain and scared and the meaning you give to it is, I guess this means I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. I bet real writers don't get scared or uncertain. I bet my parents were right about me and I should have gone to law school. You know, in other words, yep. the meaning you give to your anxiety is what causes the problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been in therapy on and off as a patient for 20 years. I'm as neurotic and insecure as I ever was. <laughs> I just don't hassle myself about it anymore. Exactly. And, and You know what I mean? Yes. I don't think it means anything about me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think one of the things that where people get really trapped is they think, well, you know, uh, if, if I do enough work on myself or if I get enough therapy or take enough classes, there's some perfectible version of me in the future that will never be anxious or uncertain. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yep. And it, what it does to me is it says you're not lovable the way you are. And I think everybody is lovable the way they are. I mean, one of the things I teach in my writing classes when I do workshops is you are enough right now to be the writer you want to be. And that includes all the crap that you carry in your head. Mm. You know, your anxiety and your fears and your doubts, you know. And and I remember one time I had a patient, I may have mentioned this to you on the last show, this patient who said, gee, I wish I could take all my anxiety and fears and depressions and just shove them out the door and then I would write. And I said to him, write about what? 
Exactly. Because all that stuff is the, the raw materials of the human condition. You got to invite that stuff all back in. Yeah, because as a reader or a, or as an audience on any level, that's what we're, those are the clues we're always looking for. Is like, oh, look, they're broken like me. How did right. how did they deal with it? Or how did absolutely? Yeah, you know. I, I mean, mean, the reason we respond to drama, comedy. Heartbreak, tragedy, excitement, um, um, you know, eroticism, or all those things that, that take place in really well-written plays or novels or screenplays. The reason we respond is because everybody has operatic passions. <laughs> they just do. I mean, the guy bagging your groceries at the supermarket, <laughs> if you knew what his story was, your jaw would drop. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that has been such a gift to me uh, as I move into, I think, my 28th year in my private practice here, is the unbelievable drama of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that any of us survive is remarkable. <laughs> but the resiliency of people in the face of unbelievable stuff in their childhoods and in their, in their, even in their adolescence and, and, and teen years and 20s and stuff, and people essentially trying to do the best they can in an arbitrary and inexplicable world. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? I, yeah. it, it just, the world seems more and more uncertain and inexplicable. You know, as yep. Sartre said, you know, the condition of modern man is incomprehension and rage. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of a gloomy Gus, but I mean, the reality is... Yeah, every once in a while you want some moments of awe in there, too, would be nice. Yeah, and I think there are some nice moments. That's why I like Camus better. Yes. Camus kind of said, well, you know, he's the one who said, one must assume Sisyphus to be happy. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and and Camus' position was, look, you know, who knows, maybe tomorrow will be better, but keep pushing that rock, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's what we all do. Everybody in my practice is just trying to push that rock. And, and, uh, you know, my job is to try to help them see, well, you know, if you push it this way, it might move up a little faster. Yeah. And if you can't push it that way, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Well, and, and you mentioned in one of your more recent articles, I can't remember which one it was, but you talked about love and the importance of loving what you do. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it, uh, it's, it's so interesting because I was thinking a, a lot about the today. At the beginning of my show, I talked about, I just read this incredible book called Dying to Be Me. And it's this uh, nonfiction story about this woman who had this really very, very intense near death experience. And she had an incredible experience of unconditional love and how she brought that back into her life and and decided to come back and live and um healed from cancer and um and so i've been really like in this connecting to this unconditional space within myself and one of the things i woke up today really grumpy and everything because it seems like my life and i think modern life in general and life in this business here if you're an independent artist like myself is so much about you know, returning a bunch of emails and getting on Twitter and promoting yourself and, and tr- trying to get people to call you back and, and trying to make things happen. And you always feel like you got to be making things happen, making things happen. And, and it's like you forget about the joy part and the love part and the process part. And, 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 and I'm having a difficult time finding some balance, real, you know, real serious balance in my day. And, 
And so I was just wondering, how do you, Dennis, find your own balance between certainly your practice, but also all the ins and outs of life and then, and then connecting to your, to your artistic work? Well, that's a real good question because I think most of the time, like most people, I don't feel like I'm very balanced. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm working too hard or I feel like I'm always behind. I mean, that's the thing, yes. whether it's, you know, I just feel like, you know, I have this article due, you know, they're waiting for my third novel, my tax guy's waiting for my tax <laughs> returns, you know, I have a full practice, I have a family, you know, it's like, so I always feel like I'm just behind. And sometimes, though, you just have to cut out the noise and, and you know, literally take an hour, you know, and and breathe. You know, I, I, a, a Buddhist monk friend of mine one time years ago, we were at a party and somebody said to him, I'm thinking of starting a spiritual practice. Uh, what's the, the books that you would recommend I read? And my friend said, actually none. I'd recommend two hours of silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was realizing how hard it is to find two hours of silence. Yes. And, you know, some of it is the fact that, you know, life is really hard and there's a lot of things in it. But the, we also have, I, I think, where people struggle when they talk about the, the balance is they assume, well, work is one thing and play is something else. Yes. And I've always been struck by the Buddhist position about this, which is that work and play should be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I find when I'm playful in my work, it not only doesn't feel quite so much like a task, but it doesn't activate that part of me that thinks I need to perform to get love. Yeah. So that I have to get everything in on time. Mm-hmm. Or that I have to return every phone call in a particular way. Uh, I, I think all of us are racing around so much trying to get everything done because we live in this tremendous fear that we'll miss something, that yeah. we will forget something, that we'll drop the ball somewhere as though there is, there is no, um, there's no like second act where you can pick that up again. And yeah. I think uh, particularly in a culture that's as achievement oriented as ours, I think one of the reasons people are so anxious and feel so much stress is like every event defines who we are. You know what I mean? So if you (laughs) screw up in a performance or if you get a bad review or if you forget to return a phone call or if you forget to, you know, change the oil in your car and you go, these are the things human beings do. But for so many people, each of those defense define them. Oh, man, did you screw up? Oh, you were supposed to do that. Oh man, you got a bad review. You're screwed. This sense where 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 you're up against a firing squad all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that conditional life yeah. versus the unconditional space, which one can only find. I mean, uh, beginning of the show, I was talking about being in Hawaii and just getting to stare at the ocean for a few days and really getting to deeply tap into that unconditional space within myself because I could, there was, I could really, I was 3000 miles away or however, you know, and I could unplug and not have to look at the emails and all of that. And people knew I was away. Um, and the world did not stop. <laughs> yeah. Everything kept going on. It certainly did. And, um, and, and that's the one thing that this, this writer was talking about that there's, that we forget how, that, you know, that just being here, just being alive itself is enough. Yes. And remember, too, I think for most of us, 
you know, we, we think of everything in life as a test. You know, you, you did this well, you did this poorly, you know, whatever. And life isn't a test. It's not something you have to, like, get straight A's in to pass. You know what I mean? And, and I yeah. say this to someone who, who, believe me, has not in any way transcended this. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it is, you know, uh, it drilled into me from a young age. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's very, very hard to see that, you know, this isn't a test. This is just life. And even if you did none of the things that you're trying to do right now, you still pass. Yeah. You know, there's, nobody's judging it. There's, there's no judge, there's no judge Judy up in the sky going, well, that sucked. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. There's no one with a list. That's what I always think That's about. That's right. There's no one with a list. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I'm, I'm an inveterate list maker. And I noticed years ago, if I had like 10 items on my list and I cut off two, I put two more on there. And it took me years to realize this list always has 10 things on it. Yep. And I realized, oh, <laughs> so you, you never get to feel done, you know? And it's yeah. like, oh, you know, and, and, you never do get done. Nothing, you know, I don't want it to be like on my tombstone. Here lies Dennis Palumbo. He got everything done. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of depressing if that's what's on my tombstone. Yeah. And the cool thing is, is I think part of learning to have some sanity with all of this is, is also to learn how to absolutely step away from the list maker in the head and to be able to be, to just be. Whether it's t- yeah. take a walk or go stare at the ocean or meditate or listen to some music or go to a dance class or whatever it is, but it's to be some, to be in a space where there is no sense of needing to accomplish, to finish, to perfection. I, Alan Watts used to talk about dancing. He says, dancers don't decide, well, I'm going to end up on that spot on the stage. Or, or, or my, the whole goal of the dance is to end up on that spot. No, the whole goal of the dance is to dance. And if you happen, to, you know, if you end up on the spot, you end up on the spot. And, and I just, I used to love that. It's like, oh yeah, there's no goal to it. There, there's, it's being in the middle of it that's important. That's right. And I think it, it comes down to permission giving, giving yourself yeah. permission or feeling entitled not to be attached to a particular outcome. Mm-hmm. And and again, that comes from our childhood. I mean, that, yep. is, that is one of the hardest things to do because, you know, whether it's in our culture, in schools, or in our churches, or from our parents, you know, regardless of how good the intention might have been, there's a message about performance and achievement that's really in there. And, you know, as somebody once said, it's hard to fight an enemy that has outposts in your head. <laughs> so, if, if, you know, you're saying to yourself, I-, I need to give myself permission yeah. to, you know, go slower, to do less. And, you know, and, and, and then you have to be careful, too, because then if you're not able to do that, you fail that test, too. You know, like <laughs> yes, Suzuki you can't make said, it. Some, yeah, somebody asked uh, 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 Suzuki, the guy who wrote uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yes. Someone said, Jesus, I don't, I don't know if I can fit into meditation one in the morning or one in the evening. And he said, God, if Zen practice is going to make your life even busier, then don't do it. <laughs> nice, yeah. You see what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, the best thing that guy could do would do nothing. 
Yeah, they, they he would actually be further along. Uh, Choyam Trumpa talks about spiritual materialism. It's the same That's thing. That's right. Yeah. I always love that phrase. Yeah, I love that too. It, 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 it completely fucks with your mind. Uh, it, and yeah, and you, t- it was interesting you were talking about childhood because this, this morning part of what I was thinking about was that time and it was a great little memory, a spontaneous memory came up in my life about being about 11 years old and remember, I remember having this moment where my best friend and I, uh, decided to do a variety show and there was all this joy about it. And, oh my God, and feeling the idea and, and getting and doing, writing the skits out and writing the order of them and getting the costumes and the stuffed animals who were going to be our co-stars and all that kind of stuff. And not one second of it felt like a deadline. It had to be perfect. You know, it certainly wanted it to be good and we wanted it to, to, to do well with, in front of our parents, but, but there was no sense of like it being a test in any way. And I was like, oh yeah, remember that feeling? Wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And, and really give and deciding, wow, wouldn't that be interesting to, to reframe life like that in that, in that, energy in that space coming coming from that perspective i know it would really be wonderful but mm. <clears throat> because the childlike sense you know it, it's sort of like when a five-year-old comes running home from kindergarten or whatever and says you know mommy mommy look at this painting i painted isn't it great you know and you put it up on the wall and it's oh isn't it great you know and now you paint it and before you run home you go i better look at this painting. oh god <laughs> Susie's painting over there is so much better than mine. And yeah. God, if I bring it home and mom doesn't, what if she doesn't want to put it on the refrigerator? Right. Or what if my brother's picture on the refrigerator is higher up than my picture on the refrigerator, yeah. you know? And and see, that all that stuff gets drained away Yeah. as we begin imagining the response that we're going to get. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that's so great about when you're flowing in your work is you forget that. Yep. You know, you, you forget all that, you know, the chattering monkey mind that, that puts up all of these conditions or imagines all of these, uh, uh, horrible negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. And they can paralyze people. Yeah. And, and, and yet when you're the doing of the thing, like, like you said, Alan Watts talked about dancing. I mean, most of the time when you forget yourself and just do the thing you're doing, it's really, really wonderful. Because you're not thinking about that, you know, yeah. and, and and to get caught up in what you're doing, to be caught by something is so wonderful. Uh, I think one of the reasons people like sports is, you know, you're, you're watching it on TV, you're in the stands, and you get caught up in the excitement, you're jumping up and down and screaming, and your life and your employment and your position <laughs> in society is not dependent at all on mm. anything you're doing. Yeah. That's you a, know what I mean? There's yeah. this sort of release. That's a great observation. And I think that we should try maybe to put some of that feeling into our work, not only the creative work, but everything else. Yes. I mean, you know, because most of, of the time there's just a lot of junk in it. I remember when I used to teach an acting class, I used to always say to the actors, you know, the, the times when you're going to actually be performing on Two and a Half Men 
is about 2% of your acting career. Yes. You know, the rest of your acting career is taking acting classes, getting your pictures taken, auditioning, doing scene work, and reading, and trying to get your agent to call you and stuff. And I said, if you only think of yourself as an actor during those 2% of your working life, when you're actually being employed as an actor, you're going to be depressed. Yeah. But if you see all that other stuff you're doing is part of your work and your craft as an artist, then it will expand your sense of yourself and you'll feel empowered rather than disempowered. And nothing makes us more disempowered than living a life, even a creative one, in which everything's fine only when we're published, produced, mm. You know, yes. reviewed, uh, filmed, you know, those are the very small times in your creative life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and then there's the flip side of that, which is something that I've been dealing with, which is I've been living in the shadow and in hiding for 20 years and, and, and kind of putting my toe out in the world with a little bit here. And then I, I put myself out there a little bit and maybe get a little attention. And then I would crawl back into the, the shadow mm-hmm. because the, the spotlight was, too scary. The idea of success was, was too much. And now I'm finding with my dad being gone and, and certainly with the work I'm doing, the podcast and my radio show on Sirius and then my live show, I've been more and more willing to, to go out there and, and, and have some success. And so for me, that's, it's, it's almost like at times I I have fantasies of getting invisible again and, and because that was my comfort zone, not, not, right. you know, it wasn't like, yes, I had, you know, dreams of being published and dreams of this and that, but I find, you know, so I start to swing back and forth and think, oh, I, I need to go back and become, uh, uh, do something else, be a teacher of something and go hide in a room somewhere. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm curious about how yourself and how some of your clients have dealt with, getting success, getting more in the spotlight and, and how to maintain a sense of, of safety or being centered or connected to self when the world starts to to look at you more. Well, that can be, you know, it's funny. Most people who are interested in creativity, whether they're actors, directors, writers, performers, whatever, you know, spend years and years trying to get in the spotlight. And then once they're in there, they look around trying to figure out where they can hide. Yes. And and it's because the spotlight is just impossible to be in 24-7. Mm. It just is. Mm-hmm. And the smart, creative person, um, usually if they're smart, they, they find something else that they love to do, whether it's riding horses or raising a kid or painting pictures and some quiet place to do it, mm. you know, and, and it, it's, you know, it is fascinating because most artists have very mixed feelings about that very invisibility that they say they want. Yeah. There, there was a wonderful story about Jack Benny who just got so tired of, of being Jack Benny that he had a friend of his take him up to these mountains to do some, you know, fishing and stuff. And he was up in some little, God knows where town for like three or four days where nobody knew who he was and nobody did what he did. And he finally said to his friend, I got to get out of here. <laughs> he, he, he could not tolerate it. 
Wow. Yeah. You know, he had become so used to like ducking yes. away from people trying to clamor after him. Right. The people going, yeah, well, what do you do? You know, <laughs> that he couldn't tolerate. <laughs> but, but seriously, I, I think, again, it's about trying to find balance. Mm. And, uh, while some, you know, creative people go, well, you know, I'll just go get a cabin in the woods somewhere. In my experience, the best way to find that balance is to do something totally not connected to the thing for which you're famous and to do it in a real way, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, working for a charity or, you know, something like that. My, 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 my most grounded patients are the ones for whom there are one or two things they do not connected to their notoriety or their celebrity or their success that gives them a sense of meaning, that makes them feel as though they're contributing to something that is not about the growth of their career, mm-hmm. but rather they're contributing to something larger than themselves. Yeah, that's great. And you can really find yourself that way. You know, as the Buddhists say, service to others is service to oneself. And I think that that's really true. Yeah. And most of my really successful patients, as they hit their maturity in their life, you know, their 40s and 50s and mm-hmm. 60s, they turn to that service in some form. And it's not purely altruism. It feels great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it it makes sense because there's so much at the beginning of a career and especially in this town, it it you know, it, it really does you do feel like Sisyphus on some level and it takes an like an enormous amount of time and persistence and courage to to break through to maintain to to all of that and so there there is all, all this self focus that goes on and to be able to balance the psyche and the life with something that is um so selfless like that 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 just makes a, a lot of a, a really a lot of sense and also i think it's important to remember that the way human beings are constructed we we tend to be happy when we're in pursuit of a goal and we feel like we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Whereas once we get the goal, we want to find another goal. Yes. The, the, the funny thing is, 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 in my experience, happiness is making progress toward a goal. And once you get there, the, the journey itself is the reward. And once you get there, there's a lot of gratification for having arrived there. But then you turn around and go, okay, what's the next thing that I can go on my journey toward? Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I know that I've had to learn, and I just just think it's just my own psychological makeup, and I think it's very similar to a lot of people, is that I had to learn to to actually receive the gratification part. You know, because there's, there's that tendency too where there's some mentality where you're always striving and striving is really right. all you know. And then you never <laughs> let yourself receive and be proud of what you've created. And, and that, you know, I used to feel very empty when I would accomplish something. It just, it wouldn't land. It wouldn't feel like, well, certainly it would never live up to the ideal of what it is. But, but beyond right. that, I wouldn't even let myself even just be say, yay, good, you know, job well done, Kelly. You actually did that. And learning to do that, I think helps too, to really, really be gracious with yourself and say, fuck yeah, I worked my ass off and I've done this thing and look at how great it is. And, and, and let yourself have a sense of accomplishment because that can then. I, I think that. Yeah, I think that's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's very important. 
And I've often uh, worked with patients who had a really difficult time uh, 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 really allowing themselves to enjoy that gratification, to mm-hmm. feel good about what they had accomplished. And again, a lot of it comes from uh, sometimes people have these kind of childhood injunctions that they'll rest on their laurels or that, you know, um, the, the other shoe's going to drop, you know. <laughs> and my feeling is the other shoe is always going to drop. <laughs> yes. and, and, and you don't prevent that shoe from dropping by not enjoying the shoe yep. that you're wearing right now. Yeah, It's like, well, I'd like to feel good about this Oscar, but, you know, five years from now, I may not be able to get every role I want. Right. You know, it's like I remember when Mike Nichols won the Oscar for directing um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I think he got the Oscar for directing that. I may be wrong, but he got some Oscar for something. And somebody said, doesn't it feel good? He said, well, yeah, but of course, I'm still going to die one day. (laughs) And I thought to myself, well, you're an idiot. (laughs) Because, yes, you are going to die one day and you just won an Oscar. Both things are true. Yeah, yeah. You know, winning the Oscar wasn't supposed to prevent you from dying one day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And if you had thought it was, you were an idiot. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah, I think as I get older, I, I'm much more willing to feel real, like I'm real gratified that people like my mystery novels, for example, or I'm really glad that my practice is a success. Because in the old days, I would say to myself, you know, well, don't rest on your What about your next novel? What if it's not as good? I mean, right. I know me. And it's taken me years not to get like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of your next novel, uh, how does it feel to have your second novel out now? Uh, it feels great. Uh, Fever Dream has been out a couple months now, maybe three. Okay, like that. good. And it's the second in a series. Uh, here's my plug. So mm-hmm. for anyone listening, yeah. this is my shameless self-promotion. Excellent. Right Go for it. Uh, it's the second in a series of mystery thrillers. Uh, featuring uh, psychologist and trauma expert Daniel Rinaldi. He uh, consults for the Pittsburgh police, and his specialty is treating the victims of violent crime. And the first novel was called Mirror Image, and I was very gratified by the response, as I said. And I got an equally gratifying response on the second one, on Fever Dream. And I'm very, very excited to be at this grand old age, <laughs> uh, writing, uh, writing a mystery series. And I'm hard at work on the third one and to be called Night Terrors. And I'm very excited to get an opportunity to use the character of Daniel Rinaldi, not only because the stories take place in Pittsburgh, my hometown, um, but also because as a therapist, he's kind of a mouthpiece for <laughs> me and my feelings about the state of the mental health profession right now yeah and so um what i'm proud of is is that the characters are good and well-rounded but i think the stories are very good and the twists and turns are are pretty pretty surprising and unexpected well and i have i work hard at making them as good as i can make them well and and really uh, your first one i mean like i told my audience i am a i'm a reader of these kind of books and I, it was a total page turner, that first one, which was such a relief too, because, you know, it's like, oh, I want Dennis's book to be good. We become friends. And, and it was, I was like, could not put it down. So I am really excited for your next one because uh, for the one and sitting in my iPad right here in front of me, um, to have a weekend to just, uh, delve into it and, uh, and immerse myself because you are a, you are a page turner writer. I love that. And I loved your analysis of writing mystery and, and what's important about thrillers 
on your Psychology Today blog, you wrote about that. And I, you really have, I love everything you do, Dennis. You just have such a great reframe and such a great perspective because I hadn't thought about the real psychological satisfaction of what goes on in being a reader of a thriller and you really nail it. It's really, it's like, Oh yeah, that's true. Isn't it? I don't really oh, care who did it. About uh, my column, the one that was taking the mystery out of writing mystery. Yes. That yeah. one. Yes. Where I talk about what really is important for people who, who are reading uh, mysteries and thrillers and, and what they find in it. That's so fulfilling. Yes. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I've read about a million since I was like, <laughs> I think my first mystery, I was like 10 years old. I had the mumps or something. And my dad, uh, brought me the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah. Well. I remember reading it and thinking, how long has this been going on? <laughs> and I have been a mystery reader and writer for years and years. And it's funny with, with, I, I was very lucky in show business, and things worked out pretty well for me there. But I had always wanted to create a series character. Mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to create a mystery, you know, character. Yep. And I'm so excited uh, that at the age of 60, when Mirror Image came out, I, I, I I'm a classic example of it's never too late. That's beautiful. You know what I mean? Yep. My first mystery thriller came out when I was 60. And I thought, well, hell, if I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> and who are some of the authors that you like in the genre? Oh, I love, there's so many I like. I like, uh, Michael Connolly, Dennis Lee Hain, uh, T. Jefferson Parker, Thomas Perry, uh, gosh, there, there's just so many. James Lee Burke with his Dave Robichaux theories. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I also like, um, let me see. Well, I like some of the older guys too, especially the older noir kind of writers. I love Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and James M. Kane, hmm. Patricia Highsmith. Uh, those classic writers, I, I really, really enjoy them very, very much. Oh, that's great. I know some of the ones you mentioned. I've, I've read some of them. Uh, I've been into the last 10 years, um, Elizabeth George and her Lindley. Oh, she's a wonderful writer. Yeah. The she, Inspector Lindley mysteries. Yeah, yeah fa- fantastic. Uh, just great. One of the things I really like about crime novels, I think, and, and you can see this starting with Conan Doyle, actually, is that they are wonderful um like like time machines, they're, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're kind of like, if you want to know what the culture's yes, like, yes. if you want to know like what it's really like in this culture, right. uh, crime stories are very good as reflectors of the social and cultural mores of the time. Yep. You know what I mean? I mean, how much things cost and what people wore <laughs> and what people found good or bad or sexy or unscrupulous. I mean, the really, really good crime writers create these these wonderful like time capsules yes it's so true uh, uh, it's really quite astounding yeah and that makes me think about you know someone like Kaleeb Carr who wrote um the alienist right uh and how he wrote about turn of the century new york uh and how he's a 20th a late 20th century guy and how he yeah. really really captured that historical the feeling of New York back then and the feeling of the detective world back then, that the fingerprints right. were just these things that they were just starting to have and, and to, to, and to deal with something called fingerprinting and, and how exciting that was to read that because you felt like you were, 
uh, you know, you were reading like someone like, you know, uh, Sir Conan Doyle, you know, but he's, but he, the guy had a modern perspective. It was really great. Yeah, no, that, that's really wonderful. I love that. That's book. really wonderful. That's, I highly recommend that one too. Well, Dennis, uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. And, oh, um, it's always such a pleasure talking to you, Kelly. You ask such wonderful questions. They're very thoughtful and they keep me on my toes. You know what I mean? I like that very much. I can't pull any fast ones on you. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, well, you're, you, I just love digging into your mind. I I feel like you're like this, you're this amazing treasure trove of wisdom and, uh, experience. So for me, it's, uh, you know, you're the sage, you're the sage master and, uh, Oh my goodness. I, I think I see a tasteful gift basket in your future. Oh, That's my, all I oh well, excellent then. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you, Dennis. And everyone, once again, it's called uh, his newest book is Fever Dream and uh, Dennis Palumbo. And go check him out. And if you're a writer, go check out his writing book, Writing from the Inside Out. One of one of the most fascinating perspectives on writing. Uh, really unique, unique ways in reframing of the process. And so thank you, Dennis. You have a, have a great, uh, have a great week. Yeah, same to you, Kelly. All right, bye. Bye-bye. So everyone, this is, uh, the end of the show. What was I going to talk about at the end of the show? Oh, you know, the stuff I always talk about at the end of the show. Let's see what's going on. Um, well, in my life, I have another performance here in Santa Monica at the Santa Monica Playhouse of a Carlin Home Companion. And, uh, it will be April 26th. At um, 8 p.m., you can get tickets at Brown Paper Tickets or go to my website, kellycarlin.com. Go to the Carlin Home Companion section. There's a little ticket link thing. Click on that. And then, most exciting, going up to Portland in May. Already talking about it because I want to sell out this place. It's like 400 seaters called the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, tell all your Portland friends Get your football team, get your, uh, your chorus, uh, get your, uh, book club to come, uh, and see me on Mother's Day, the night of Mother's Day. I'm calling it Mother's Night. <laughs> so check out this weekend. May 11th, I'll be at, on, on live wire radio, but May 11th is the anniversary of my mother's death. May 12th is my father's birthday. He would have been 75. And then May 13th is actually Mother's Day, which my mother died on. So, and I'm doing the show that Sunday night. So there will be tears because I will be having them on stage, uh, during t- certainly certain parts of my show when I tell stories about my parents. So come see me in Portland. Also, uh, it's not up on the website yet, but at the Comedy Magic Club here in Hermosa Beach on May 17th, not my dad's birthday, five days after his birthday, I'm doing a benefit for the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression, which I'm on the board of. I'm doing a comedy benefit. I've already booked Dana Gould and Gary Shandling. So tickets will be available hopefully in the next week for that. Uh, come on down and have, it's going to be two hours of solid comedy from Big, big names, uh, people you don't know, but they're going to be, uh, they're amazing comics and myself probably hosting or emceeing or something, which will be <laughs> always fascinating to do. So there's all of that. Um, Logan, do you have any gigs coming up in Los uh, Angeles? Taylor and I are doing the M-Bar. Oh, Taylor Negron and Logan Heftel are doing the M bar on April 24th here in Los Angeles. Them together heavenly them separate heavenly but them together certainly heavenly so check that out 
Um, next week, I have Chris Doritas from KCRW here in my studio, people. I, I can't tell you. I'm like as excited about this as I've been about any guest ever, ever, ever. I have butterflies in my stomach. I feel like I need to be like the girl who knows everything, but I don't know anything about music. So I'll be asking Chris everything. Uh, so I want to thank Logan for coming by and engineering today and all the crew at Smodcast. Thank you guys so much. You're, you rock. Kevin Smith always. And, um, Find me on the Twitter, find me on the Facebook, and uh, we will go out here with a little Logan Heftel. I think we're going to do a little, uh, I think we're going to do Not Now. So everyone, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. For a change of scene I know what you need Or if you prefer to be familiar You could stay with me If you want to sit and talk I know a spot We'll take a walk Let me show you what I've got Come play with me now Though habit is mandible, habit will end it all. Easier to keep along, feel the beat, sing the song. Hey, don't slow it down, size it up, keep it loud. We are never going down, not now. Wait, don't make a sound Keep on fed, keep on proud We are never going down Not now I'll introduce you to the promised land Show you the hills, the city plants Everything was made for man Come play with me now Though habit is mentable, habit will end them all. Point the blame and don't move on. Feel the beat, sing along. Hey, don't slow it down. Size it up, keep it loud. We are never going down. Not now. Wait. Don't make a sound Keep on fed Keep on proud We are never going down Not now But you'll figure out They'll take your name They'll play your game But it never was about Habit is mandible, habit will end us all Easier than right or wrong, feel the beat, sing the song Hey, don't slow it down, size it up, keep 
bit loud We are never going down Not now Wait, don't make a sound Keep us fed, keep us proud We are never going down Not now We are never going down Not now.